0: to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson.
1: If there is no resurrection, then we have to, I think, conclude that there would be no hope in life or in death. What hope would you have today if there was no resurrection? But but in that, where is the hope? Is there any hope? I think we're completely deprived of hope if there is no resurrection in this life, but of course, in the next life as well.
0: Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the book of Acts. Join us as Pastor Brian concludes his teaching on Acts, chapter 4, verse 12, in a message titled, No Other Name. here's Pastor Brian.
1: You would not see a humility in their life. I mean, these are, these are really some pretty arrogant claims if they're not true. Claiming to be the way, the truth, and the life, claiming to be the light of the world and all of that. So um, it, you, you would expect somebody like that to be quite self-confident and quite arrogant and quite uh, vocal about it. But you know, when you look at Jesus, he made those claims, but he was simultaneously humble. He was very humble. And he was kind and gracious even to his enemies. And even in the passage that we're looking at today, the thing that's interesting to me is that, you know, these are the people that, that put Jesus to death. That's who Peter and John are standing before. These are the very men. Notice the names, Annas, Caiaphas. Go back to the Gospels and read about those who, who you know, passed the death sentence on Jesus. It was them. But here's the thing. Do you know what's happening here? There's an appeal being made to them. They are being given an op- another opportunity to change their mind. That's what's happening here. The Lord allows the apostles to come before them so that they can hear the message again and hopefully change their minds. Now, of course, they don't do that, but you see even in that the humility of Christ. He, doesn't, he didn't wipe them out when he had the opportunity standing before them, and he's not even doing that now. So we see humility. Secondly, we see in Jesus compassion. Now, there have been few rulers throughout human history that you would refer to as a compassionate person. They're few and far between, but Jesus, he was all about compassion. He was all about helping other people. You know, it's funny because today, when you you listen to kind of the, uh, you know, the modern liberal mind of the things that they admire, well, you know, they claim to admire humility. They claim to admire uh, people with compassion, and they they want to reach out and they want to bring the marginalized in and make them feel welcomed and and all of those kinds of things. Well. I just want to say this. If that's really true, if you really feel that way, then Jesus is your man because Jesus did it. Jesus didn't just talk about it. Jesus did it. He went about doing good. He went about healing all those who were oppressed of the devil. You read the passages in scripture, you know, where it talks about the lame and the halt and the blind and the maimed and all of those people that, that were brought to Jesus. Now, one day, you know, Cheryl was, and I were together, and she was, she was reading over that passage, and she said, look at, you know, listen to the description of this. And she said, just think, if these were all the people that wanted to hang out with you, I mean, you know, you'd be kind of like, uh, not available today. You know, the lame, the halt, the, the blind, the maimed. These are the people that Jesus gladly received. So we see his compassion. Now, again, humility and compassion don't necessarily prove his claims, but I think they're just something to consider. But then we have to look at a topic that we considered previously. We have to look at his miraculous power. Jesus had power, but he didn't use that power to benefit himself. He only used that power to bless others. He had power over nature. He could say to the wind, stop. And that caused the sea to become calm. He could take a fish and a few loaves of bread and he could feed thousands of people with it. He could turn water into wine. He could do these powerful, powerful things. But he didn't use that power to benefit himself. Of course, most of his miracles, as we pointed out, were acts of uh, benevolence and mercy toward those who were suffering and those who were afflicted. And so the miraculous power, these are like his credentials. So Jesus claims to be God. What does he have to back up the claim? Well, his miraculous power. On one occasion, he said to the men who opposed him, he said, look, if you don't believe me, believe me for the work's sake. I'm doing works that nobody has ever done. If you have a hard time believing that I'm the Messiah, well, just believe in the works that you may really know that the Father has sent me. So he pointed to the works of himself. But all the way through the the ministry of Jesus, he always would refer people to one thing that would be the final proof of his claims. And that would be his resurrection. And so when he cleansed the temple and those, uh, those authorities came after him for that, they said, by what authority do you do this? And he said, this is my authority. He said, destroy this temple, speaking of his body, and in three days, I'll raise it again. So the resurrection is always that that final evidence or that final proof. And so Peter is standing before, before these guys and he's reminding them, as he claims that there's no other name, he's reminding them that you killed Jesus, but God raised him from the dead. And so today, when we talk about the exclusivity of Christ in our cultural context, and we have people that challenge us on the claims of Christ, we need to point them to his resurrection. His resurrection is, that is the proof. And the resurrection of Christ is uh, something that can be established historically. We we have a historical account of the resurrection, and by all methods of judging Historical accuracy, the Gospels meet it on every on every level, but of course, there are those who would say, Well, you know the resurrection was just a myth that never really happened. Uh, these guys made this story up and, and you know again, people thinking today they they don't understand first of all the context of any of this stuff. You know, the big push against the church today in the culture is that, or or one of the, you know, reasons that there's such strong opposition is the idea that the church is oppressive. That the church has historically uh, subjugated people and oppressed people and made their lives miserable and supported slavery and, you know, all of this kind of stuff. So, and, you know, that's just what the church has always been. And so when you say, well, Jesus rose from the dead and these guys were eyewitnesses, oh no, they were in it for the power. You know, they just took that story and they ran with it because it it gave them power. And so what they do is they project the church in, in, say, the medieval period, they project it back onto the first century. You know, in the medieval period, the church had tremendous power, but they project it back onto these guys. You can't do that. There was no power. There was no advantage whatsoever to saying that Jesus rose from the dead in the context that these guys find themselves in. This put them at a complete disadvantage in the culture. There was no advantage. They didn't get any, they didn't get any power or authority over anybody. They got thrown in prison. That's what happened to them. So this idea that they did this, you know, to establish a power structure over other people is just absolutely absurd. And, you know, the problem is the people who are the loudest about these things, they don't even have any idea about the actual facts of history. They ought to just go back and read the book of Acts and they would find that, oh, it's a completely different story than we thought. As a matter of fact, the book of Acts ends with... the the chief apostle Paul in prison. That's how the book ends. But so let's just address this idea that the resurrection, it's a made up story, as some would say. They made it up to get advantage over others. Well, there's many reasons why that just simply can't be true. And let me just give you a few. The first is that if the resurrection story was made up, they would have never told it like it is told. It is far too honest to be made up. You know, in the story, they talk about their own doubts. They talk about, you know, even seeing the, the linen cloths, but thinking, no, nah, you know, I don't know what this means. It surely can't mean a resurrection. In the story, they actually tell that women were the first ones to the tomb and women were the first ones to believe. Now, you know, in that culture, a woman's testimony was worthless. So the last thing you'd want to do if you were making up a story is say, hey, well, you know, these women told us. That would have just killed it right there. But they told the story. And they told it like it was because that is actually how it happened. So they would not have told it like they told it. It's far too honest to be made up. They would have undoubtedly left out the unflattering parts about themselves with their doubt, their fear, and so forth. Secondly, no one would have made up this story because it's clear that there was no expectation for the bodily resurrection of an individual at that time. There, there was no expectation of that. Now, not only did the apostles not expect it, but nobody in the world expected that. If you look at the understanding of the Jews in regard to the resurrection, they never thought of the resurrection as as, a, as an individual, a singular event. For the Jews, a resurrection was a collective thing that would happen at the end of time. Now, for the rest of the world, the idea that, you, that your body would be raised was completely foreign because for the rest of the world, the body, they had embraced a philosophy that basically said that materialism, the material world, including the body, is the problem. It's bad. It's evil. It needs to be done away with. So for them, the future looked like liberation from the body not a continuation in the body. So point is nobody thought of a bodily resurrection like we have with Jesus. Nobody at the time. So if they made it up, they made up something that nobody in the world was actually thinking about at the time. And I think that we can dismiss that. So that's another thing. But then thirdly, if, again, if you look at the story, you know that after the death of Jesus, the the disciples were completely dejected. They 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 were defeated. They thought uh, they, they even said, We thought that he was going to redeem Israel, but he's been dead now for three days. So had Jesus not risen from the dead, you know what these guys would have done? They would have just gone back to their lives. But maybe not even that. They might have gone and hid somewhere because, you know, they're their leader had been put to death by the state. So they they might have fearfully went and hid themselves, which they actually did temporarily. But they never would have left their family, they never would have left their 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 businesses, they, they never would have accepted rejection from their culture. They never would have done that if this story wasn't true. It just makes absolutely no sense that they would do that. But then fourthly, you really Apart from the resurrection of Jesus, you don't have a good explanation for the millions upon millions of lives that have been transformed by the gospel down through the ages. How do you explain that? You know, one of the things that always fascinates me about the you know the effect of the gospel on people is as fascinated as I am uh, at, at the gospel's power to transform a clearly sinful life that you know has, has, has just been destroyed through behavioral you know patterns and so forth. As fascinated as, as I am by that, and as impressed as I am by that, I'm actually more fascinated about the people who aren't like that, who, in other words, have absolutely no need from the human standpoint to embrace Christ but do. That to me is an even more fascinating thing. It's fascinating for a person who's really a sinner to say, yes, I'm, uh, you know, Lord, I am a sinner. It's obvious, I need you. It's even more fascinating for a person who doesn't see themselves as a sinner, but actually to become convinced they're a sinner by Christ. You know, it is more rare to find a good person, person who perceives himself as a good person becoming a believer than a person who understands themselves to not be a good person. But it does happen. And this, to me, is unexplainable, apart from the reality of the resurrection of Christ. But finally, if there, if there is no resurrection, then we have to, I think, conclude that there would be no hope in life or in death. What hope would you have today if there was no resurrection. And if there is no resurrection, then we could, you know, take it a step further and say, you know, if there's a God, he's awfully far away and we certainly haven't heard from him. And uh, so, you know, you could easily be agnostic if there's no resurrection. But, But in that, where is the hope? Is there any hope? I think we're completely deprived of hope if there is no resurrection in this life, but of course, in the next life as well. What about the next life? What, what happens? Well, some people are happy to say, well, nothing happens. You just, you're, you, know, you just go out of existence. But that doesn't really satisfy most people. So these are the things, the compassion of Christ, the humility of Christ, the miraculous power of Christ, but ultimately the resurrection of Christ. These are the things that, that affirm the claim that Jesus made that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one can come to the Father except through him, the claim that was repeated by Peter here. Now, as we close, I want us to look once again at verses 11 and 12, and notice what Peter says, because there's something fascinating here that I actually just saw myself. He says, this is the stone which was rejected by you builders which has become the chief cornerstone, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, Peter, if you remember, if you've read through your gospels, you remember Jesus, he said these very same words to those religious leaders. He asked them a question. He said, have you never read this, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? Now, Peter is taking up on this. Now, this is Psalm 118. And this was known, even at the time, to be messianic. And the fascinating thing is that Peter is drawing on this 118th Psalm. And not only is he saying now that, you know, you builders rejected the chief cornerstone, but when he says, nor is there salvation, here's the thing. In Psalm 118, that was the very point of that portion of Scripture. Let me read it to you. Psalm 118, verse 21 through 26. I will praise you, for you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made; we will rejoice and be glad in it. Listen, save now, I pray, O Lord, O Lord, I pray, send blessing. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So this psalm, this is that psalm, Hosanna. You remember that the the people were shouting that when Jesus rode into Jerusalem. Peter is taking these religious leaders back to Psalm 118. When he says there is salvation and no other, he's referring back to the cry of Psalm 118 save now. Peter's basically telling him now is the time. This is the day the Lord has made. This is the fulfillment. You, but now he makes it personal. He says, You builders have rejected the cheap cornerstone. Now, Of course, as we go on in the story, this just further enraged them, unfortunately. And that led to more difficulty for the disciples. But the point is, is that Peter is appealing to them as the builders of the nation to reconsider and to call upon the only one that can save. The one that the psalmist uh, spoke of, save now, Lord. Now they were the builders of the nation who had rejected the cornerstone. And you know, this is the truth. We're all building, whether it's the builders of a nation or any sort of society or community or a family or our own lives, We're we're all building. But what are we building on? If you, like they, are rejecting the chief cornerstone, then your building will not survive. Your building will crumble. It will come down. Their attempt to build without the chief cornerstone led to the complete destruction of their culture, their country, within just a 40-year period of time. 40 years after these events, or less than 40 years, about 37 years probably, after these events, the temple in Jerusalem, their, their place, their house, they thought, was destroyed and it has never been rebuilt to this very day. And so it is true, if a, if a person rejects the, the cornerstone, there's no way that your building's going to stand. It's not going to stand the test of time. But what is the solution? The solution is to not reject, but to receive and to embrace the one and only Savior. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's no other name. There's no other salvation. There's no other security. There's no other hope outside of Jesus. And of course, I know that most of us have understood that and we've, we've come to embrace him. But if you have not done that today, know that there is no other hope. There's no other person that has come along or will come along to match Jesus. There's no one that has ever made the claims of Jesus. There's no one that will make these kinds of claims and be able to support them. He, he's the one, he is the stone upon which our lives can be built. But we have to make sure that we are not doing what they did and rejecting that stone, but receiving him and his salvation, which is a salvation that guarantees our place with God in heaven or in eternity in his presence, you know, as we leave this world, which we all will do. But it also this salvation saves us in the present. It saves us now, and it helps us to build an enduring house. So, God help us to receive that.
0: And now, let's join Pastor Brian and Cheryl in the studio as they
1: share about this month's resource,
0: so, Brian, we're offering a book from our good friend, Charlie Campbell.
1: Yes, Charlie Campbell is the director of Always Be Ready, which is an apologetics ministry. And one website. we recommend a lot. Yeah, we recommend it a lot. And this is a one-minute answer to skeptics. Now, Charlie has done this book, and this is like a revised version answering 50 of the top objections and questions, kind of current things. You know, things change over time. There are different arguments and things. And what I like about this book is it's it's an updated, current, addressing a lot of the things that people are, are kind of throwing out there today as their objections to Christianity. And
0: some of the topics that Charlie covers in this is, why doesn't God just appear to us in a public setting and prove he exists? Or, the New Testament authors, did they steal details of Jesus' life story from other ancient religions? This is what some skeptics say. Or that the God of the Old Testament commanded the Israelites to commit genocide? Or that the Bible condoned slavery? So, these are real issues in our society today, and Charlie tells you a biblical answer for these things, and it's great.
1: Yeah, so great little one-minute answer to skeptics by charlie campbell that's our offer for it this month
0: again this month's resource is a book titled one minute answers to skeptics by charlie campbell you can order the book one minute answers to skeptics by going to our website backtobasicsradio.com scroll down until you see the photo of it and then click on the donate button When you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you the book One Minute Answers to Skeptics by Charlie Campbell to help equip you to defend the faith. It's our way of saying thank you for your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com